Harry the Prairie could get into trouble. Um, I was flying one time and my boy was probably four and he was following me and Harry the Prairie would come to the lure like a, a missile. And my boy, unbeknownst to me, had reached into my bag behind me and he had the lure line and he was, he was flipping it around and Harry the Prairie came in and smacked him in the head. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Told podcast and appreciate you coming back as we continue on with this series that's brought to you all by the Arizona Falconers Association. I want to go ahead and give a quick shout out to one of our newest sponsors being Baba Yaga Crafts out of Poland. If you haven't had a chance to check out his amazing work yet, I highly recommend you do so. He makes some really awesome handcrafted quality equipment and my personal favorite, as I've mentioned before here on the podcast, are the anklets that he makes with the Marshall Easy Twist Nuts sewn into the anklets. It's one of my favorite pieces of equipment that he makes, and the uh, link to get to his Facebook and Instagram are on our website at falconretold.com, as well as his email. So hit him up. It's definitely worth your time to try and get some awesome new quality gear that's handcrafted by him and like i said you won't regret taking the time to check out his stuff it's really great quality all right and our series featuring falconers from the great state of arizona continues on after finishing up our conversation with randy hale up in cornville we made the next three to four hour trek down to tucson and met up with tim reardon where we discussed with tim the early days of trying to kind of get Peregrine take back. And yeah, I can only imagine all the work that really went into that. He touches on some of that stuff briefly, amongst other things. And of course, aspects of his falconry career. So hope you all enjoy this next installment of the Arizona Falconers Association series. And here we go. We'll go ahead and start off a little cheers here. Okay. Go ahead and uh, there we go. Thank you. Yeah, and um, appreciate the Modelo too, yep. by the way. Um, yeah, man. It, there's there's not very many things that I've come to enjoy more than you know just uh, aside from flying the birds, just sitting around and having these conversations with guys like yourself. And uh, you know, I I don't know if you knew this about me. I kind of talked earlier to Randy about this, but. Arizona in general is always going to be kind of near and dear to me in a way. I, I spent about a year, uh, well, learning how to do this stuff, the audio stuff, mm-hmm. um, right out of high school. About a year I lived right on the Tempe Mesa border and uh, really enjoyed living out here. It's always going to be you know, very fond memories for me. And uh, so I was out there for about a year. And yeah, I mean, I ironically enough, I haven't even been, this is about 20 years I haven't, wow. I haven't been around anywhere near here in, in 20 years. Wow. Hmm. And so I used to come down and visit a friend in Tucson here, like almost, I don't know, I would say at least a couple times a month while I was living up there. Mm-hmm. And then I would make almost every weekend trips up to Sedona and got a lot of fun memories around here. So yeah. it's been nice. I'm glad that I've gotten a chance to come see you all. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad you're here. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's much appreciated. And, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as this area, how long have you lived like around Tucson or around this part of Arizona? I've been in Tucson since 1986. I, that's 37 years, I think. Um, nice. Yeah, I, I grew up in Albuquerque, 
and went to school and then decided I would uh, try the desert. I mean, if that's where you came from and stuff, it wasn't much of a shock for you moving here, right? Then, right? <laughs> it, you know, even growing up in Albuquerque, which is a high desert, um, coming here, um, I, I know at one point I was like, this this is a <laughs> desert, you know? <laughs> I mean, saguaros, and um, it took a little getting used to, but boy, one winter here, and you, you begin to see what this desert's all about, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, that was the one thing that I remember being, well, I guess one of the many things that I can remember being so special about kind of living in this state or parts of the state that are like that anyway, where basically it's like eight to nine months out of the year, it's perfect weather every single day. Mm -hmm. Nice sunny day, 80 something degrees, zero humidity and stuff. And everybody always dreads the three or four months of, you know, the 120 degree weather right, or whatever. Right. But, I always tell people, it's like, ah, just get over it. I mean, the 120, it really feels like 90 to 100, you know, to the rest, <laughs> like the rest of us would, but you know, have to live with humidity. But yeah, anyway, no hurricanes here. So we're, we're good. Yeah. Well, there is that too. I don't, I don't really hear very many tornadoes or anything right, else coming right, through here either. Right. I mean, your car might melt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's another form of natural disaster, mm -hmm. I guess, but mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so as far as that goes, you know, your transition, I mean, what, what brought you out here then initially? Uh, actually, um, I'd gone to school with a guy and um, I wanted to come someplace and do something. I, I was going to pursue construction in some order to, to earn a living. And Tucson had the, it, it had the best construction economy of any place in the nation under a million people. Didn't want to go a big place. I knew I wanted to be in the Southwest for sure. Didn't want to go back to Albuquerque. So I came here for the economy, hmm. um, which is kind of ironic because it turned out to be kind of ground zero for peregrines, you know? Hmm. Um, yeah, which, you know, I knew that didn't even figure in back then. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I guess I, my degree is in theology, and I'll say that the, the Lord works in mysterious ways because... He put me in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I I figured, I mean, at the time that I was even here, I mean, even back in, which was 2001, 2002, <clears throat> it was already like the fastest growing mm -hmm. state at that time. I think Phoenix was like the actual fastest growing city. If yeah. I remember, I can't remember the exact statistic, but yeah, I can imagine that there would have been a, a lot of work opportunity. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, there field. was, there was. And then of course the economy took a dump, but you know, you learned to, you make it through those low spots and then you go through and it turned out to be, it was perfect for me because I wanted to work for myself. You know, it suited my lifestyle. So, and it, it definitely took a while and I figured out at some point I needed to be a licensed contractor, which is a pain in the butt, mm -hmm. but I did it all. And and again, it suited my lifestyle. I worked for myself. I could name my hours. I could go do what I wanted to do. Most falconers dream, in other words. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I've dreamt of that at times. And, you know, I, the closest thing I've come to, to being able to relate to that somewhat is kind of doing the contract stuff the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. But Unfortunately, you kind of have to go where the availability is at any given time, which doesn't always play into your the hand that you would like to be dealt right. necessarily. You right. just, it it kind of turns into that whole got to play with the cards that you're dealt, you know, instead right. of 
you know, stacking the, the deck in your favor. Right. But yeah, I mean, as far as, is that, I mean, you've lived here a long time then. I mean, I can only imagine the amount of growth in this area that you've seen oh, yeah. during that time. Yep. I mean, how, how has that affected, I mean, how many spots have you lost? How, oh. I mean, how, how much have you had to readjust because of all that? Well, you know, I went through it in Albuquerque even before I left there. Cause I remember a place where I had caught a prairie and I went back you know, to see my dad or whatever in Albuquerque, and there was a mall there. So I, I saw that happen. But here, um, so many fields, we, we've had all these fields, you know, because I fly falcons, um, I was always looking for open fields. And some of the fields, especially when you kind of have the boom and bust economy, they'll clear big areas, and then everything goes bust. And so you've got these fields that come back, and they're full of weeds and, you know, perfect for, um, hunting quail or flying pigeons or whatever. And, um, but I, there's one place that would be kind of a, um, um, hall of fame. We called it the Thunderdome. A guy found it was a, um, abandoned gravel pit and that gravel pit used to flood and it was just a Mecca it was right next to the Santa Cruz river, um, which flows because of the sewage treatment plant. But there would just be tons of ducks there. And I, like my old bird, Mystique, that's where she killed her first duck. Well, if you go to the Thunderdome today, there's a commercial building there. Mm. You know, they filled, it was a huge pit, took them years. And it was just construction rubble, but they, they filled it in with rubble. And I, I told somebody I should have taken a pair of old hawk bells or something and thrown it in the hole when they were... <laughs> gone and like every year just go back there and play taps or, yeah yeah and i i did um i had a little tiersel uh it was a barbary peels tiersel that i flew in a field and um he, he was just a tremendous little dove and quail hawk and when they developed that field i did go back and there was a um kind of a drainage out of the field that was rip-wrapped and I took a, because to, as best I could remember, <clears throat> I put a, a, some hawk bells into the, into the riprap where he had caught his very first dove. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I've definitely seen things change. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. It's amazing how, as time goes on, I mean, we're, we, we kind of have a tendency to be kind of a nostalgic and sentimental bunch anyway. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I, it's it's the same everywhere and for i've had this conversation a million times and right. i'm sure i'll have it a million more but it really is amazing i mean even just in the short time you know i've been my first apprentice season was fall of 2015 so it's not like i've been doing this for a, a really long time mm -hmm. myself either but even in, in just the short time that i consider myself you know being in the sport i mean it really is just amazing how many amazing like rabbit fields and right. and how many different places that we've lost yep. and you know it's yep. like it's one of those things that's going to be an ongoing topic of conversation right. until it's all gone eventually probably yeah but well we you know we all were so concerned about being able to have birds you know when we went through the whole endangered species things and and peregrines being listed and um now we can pretty much have any falcon we want to fly and or hawk you know for that matter um but having the game and the place to fly them is what the future is all about. For and sure. that is the 
part that's very worrisome. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what the solution really to that is, or if there even is one. You know, well, like, for me, th that I will continue to always give my money to Ducks Unlimited and Trout Unlimited and Quail Forever and, you know, the places that, you know, they, I like the fact that they buy easements. They'll never be built on it. And it's, we're, you know, especially when we think about things like sage grouse and that kind of, there's, you just can't buy enough easements, you know, but um, if people can work at it, chip away at it um, as best they can that way, I think we can ensure that maybe there'll be corners where the game exists, you know. It sounds like you've been kind of donating to those places for a while. Long time. I mean, yeah, a long time. I mean, so how does that work? I mean, if someone wants to look into that and research, I mean, who who gets access to those lands? What kind of priority happens with that? I mean, does anybody really? Well, like Ducks Unlimited, especially, um, almost all of the property they buy is it's it's either property that um, well, if it is prairie potholes um, where the ducks nest, people go there in the fall and you know set up and. The duck hunters go put their decoys out there and shoot ducks up there. So most of it, I would say, is available to hunters. Um, and I, I, the same thing that you know, the I do the trout unlimited thing too. And they're, you know, what they're trying to do is is limit cattle access to the streams and make sure there is public access, um, and you know, improving the habitat at the same time. So. I think it's not it's not just about keeping people away at all, and I think that's especially Ducks Unlimited. They they definitely set the the tone for any organization because they're duck hunters, and they are the you know the premier conservation organization in this country. There was a guy down in uh, El Paso one time, Bill Meeker. He he breeds falcons, and Bill told me um, there, there was a limited prairie chicken hunt in New Mexico for a while. And then, you know, they, the prairie chickens numbers kept going down and they were going to do it out on white sands. They were going to, they talked about having a limited hunt. And Bill said, you know, if the game and fish would just do a raffle for two birds, every bird dog guy in a five-state area would put in for that raffle. They would put their money down to try and get in there to hunt those prairie chickens, but they don't. And so they're not going to get any support that way. And, you know, I understand. I mean, some birds, we need to not hunt them, that's for sure. But um, but I, I thought his point was very valid. You, the best way to get people involved is to try and give them a piece of pie, even if it's a very small piece of pie. Yeah, and that's and that's why I was curious because I mean I've I've heard of all those organizations mm -hmm. and you know just being devil's advocate, you know I think unfortunately there's other corporate entities though, you mm -hmm. know some of which are big chain corporate entities that turn around and they will take profits and buy up land and stuff, but then nobody gets access to yep. it. And it becomes something that I think that a lot of people that were encouraged to, you know, buy and shop through or whatever thought right. that, you know, was money would be going towards one thing, but haven't gone towards another. Right. So, you know, all that being said, you know, if, if that's really the case and stuff, which it sounds like it is, you know, for those other you know, entities, then, then great. I mean, I, 
how did how does a person then go about finding where these pieces of land and stuff are? Do they have a way that you can look that up? Or? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there is. I um, I know that both Trout Unlimited and Ducks Unlimited, um, they one thing that I've seen because I have done this for a lot of years, especially Ducks Unlimited. I don't know how many years I've done it, but what I feel there is a danger of is. The same thing that happened in Great Britain is that hunting becomes a, a sport of the elite. If you have the money, you can, and you know, I mean, quail hunting in the South is that, you know, the Bob White numbers went down. Now there's plantations. And if you've got big bucks, um, you can go down there and they're, you know, they, they raise these plantations that um, are groomed for quail. There's a lot of quail, but it's for people who have money. So there, you know, there, that's something that I think about as you talk about this. Yes, there is there. I can give my 40 bucks a year, but what about the people that are going to give them $400,000? You know, they're, they might get a little better access. So I'm sure it's just another one of those classic examples of like a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's, there's always a flip side to every coin, you know, there's without any kind of, of money to use for, lobbying or buying land or anything like that, then nothing will ever get done. Right. And, you know, the status quo is just going to be more people developing and, and that much more land being lost. So on the other hand, it's like, yeah, you want you still want it to somehow be available to everybody though, because, you know, I mean, for obvious reasons. So yeah, I mean, finding the middle ground on that, I think is just going to continue to get harder. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not one I can give you any answers on there. I don't think any of us have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cuz I don't got a million dollars. Well, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I and I guess, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're a, you know, Bill Gates rich or something mm-hmm. and can afford to buy all these bazillions of acres of land in these primo areas, mm-hmm. you know, for uh, for having wildlife on and stuff mm-hmm. and cultivating, well, yeah, I guess ultimately we're all <laughs> kind of at a disadvantage. Yep. <laughs> yep. I have been up on Ted Turner's ranch up in, uh, it's up by Butte, maybe Bozeman, Montana. Mm. <clears throat> and I went up there with some guys and um, we were looking for goshawks and stuff. And we drove through there and basically you couldn't leave the road. I mean, that was the thing. You could go in the ranch and you could drive and there was buffaloes. And I went over trout stream. It's like, oh, I would pay to be able to, but you couldn't do a darn thing in there, but look. So, <clears throat> but, you know, it was all conservation, ranching, you know. So, and he's got a big ranch. I know uh, Matt Mitchell's, uh has dealt with some of the stuff in the ranch that he has over in New Mexico. That, And I think he put black-footed ferrets, and it, it's good stuff, but it is a pretty much hands-off as far as I know. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Like I said, I don't think there's ever going to be a good answer unless you just happen to win the lottery or fall right. on, or fall right. on the money. But <laughs> at any rate, well, I mean, I know that, like you said, you you kind of had a start in New Mexico, and you know, you you kind of, um, I know you're kind of talking before we got going about some of your experiences, you know, starting out there, and um, you know, talking about how. Well, I mean, mentioning Matt again, mm-hmm. how, you know, you ironically enough also kind of started into falconry about the same time as him and, and got, uh, 
you know, like a, a bird around the same time as mm-hmm. him as well and everything. And go ahead and I guess just, just talk some about how you started in with all of this and, um, what, what, what bit you, so to speak about it. Well, the, the first thing I can tell you, um, when I was asked to do this, I went and I scrolled through all the people you had, had uh, interviewed and I saw Matt. So I listened to it and what was neat, um, is I, I mean, I lived all that Matt and I did it side by side, but Matt has a different memory of things than I do. And he recalled things that I might not have recalled. And he probably has a better memory than me too, because he, <laughs> I was just like, well, I'd forgotten all that. But we, we, um, we lived about a block apart. We were going to school together and, um, a guy walked down the street with a red tail on his fist. And he really wasn't a falconer. He was just a guy that knew he found out how to catch hawks. And Matt and I, before that, had been catching snakes and lizards and had tortoises. We'd made our own have a heart traps and caught quail. And, you know, if it was alive, we wanted to catch it. And that hawk, you know, I still, I can, I have a memory of seeing that guy walk down the street. And Matt and I met him, and he was—he uh, wasn't the easiest guy to deal with. Um, we considered him the the uh, neighborhood bully, but um, <laughs> we became friends, and he he became a real falconer too. Um, to he's probably st- still doing it today, but um, we—he made us a, a Swedish goshawk trap, and I know Matt has told this story also. It was huge. It was three feet by two feet by two feet, made out of wood and chicken wire. And he admitted later he he just didn't think it would ever work. But we'd go down to the cemetery, and we'd take mice, and there were kestrels down there. And that was probably about, I don't know, I'm going to say eight blocks anyway. You know, getting up at the crack of dawn in the middle of winter and carting that box and I know at least more than once our mice died. They froze to death. <laughs> but lo and behold, we did. We caught a male kestrel, and um, that was our first bird. And um, we got a few books. Maybe Bruce gave us books. I can't remember, but a manual falconry, falconry for you. Um, th- there were just were not books available. And so we began to learn a little bit about it. Um, and we moved on to the first birds we really flew were burrowing owls. Um, and we had made, um, have a heart traps, which we caught everything in. And we saw the burrowing owls with the, you know, they could have six, eight babies running out of their holes. <laughs> we just made a, like a tunnel where if they wanted to come out, they'd have to go through the trap. And we caught two little eyes burrowing owls and they were a blast. Um, they were imprinted to us. Um, I remember one of the notable things we did, there was a driving range that was open at night and you, we take those owls out there at night and they'd sit on our finger and, uh, lights, the big lights are up there and they'd fly up in the light. You'd lose them and they'd catch moths. <laughs> and then at some point you just stick your finger up in the air and whistle and out of the darkness, they'd come back to us. It was amazing that we did it and never lost them. Um, that might have been the biggest. We tried to get them to kill mice and stuff. We never, but they were they were just a blast. We got to fly them, and um, so we 
I think the first big hawks we ever had, we took two I.S. Swainson hawks. And I, I look back at that. I thought about it after I listened to your podcast with Matt, that I think we saw a fruginous nest too. And not knowing anything about anything, we said, let's do the Swainsons, not the ferruginous. Um, things might have gone differently if we'd gotten the ferruginous. But we got these Swainsons, very cool birds, beautiful birds, trained them, flew them, just couldn't get them to kill stuff. Um, they, they were neat birds, and we got experience with larger raptors. Um, but then from there, we moved on and got red tails. And um, before... We were, yeah, I think before we were even driving, we met a guy who had a Harris Hawk, and he was from Texas. He had to be among the very first wave of people flying Harris Hawks in the United States. I think these guys, people had been to Mexico or South America, and they'd figured it out. But he had this female Harris Hawk. He'd had it for four years, and... Um, he introduced us to it. We went out, we watched Agatha, this big old Harris Hawk catch rabbits. And um, from that, um, it was kind of interesting because then we, we get into high school. Um, right out of high school, I think Matt went and got an I.S. Harris Hawk. And Matt became, and really still is, one of the most badass Harris Hawk flyers I've ever seen. I mean, he <laughs> uh, he he could kill stuff with that Harris Hawk. And I, the, things changed for me at that point in time because I I, re, I found out I had a very bad allergy to rabbit for um, just horrible cats for the same way. Mm. But I'd catch rabbits and I'd break out in hives and I'd get blood on their hands, you know, and it just freaked <laughs> me out. And so I, what I did is I switched to Cooper's Hawks. And, um, and I think that was kind of where my destiny started because um, I also started messing with bird dogs. Um, but, you know, Matt just went big time into Harris Hawks. And I remember one day we'd go out kind of the same areas. There was a lot of game outside of Albuquerque. And... Uh, I was coming back from flying my Cooper's Hawk. Don't remember what I had done with the Cooper's Hawk, but saw Matt and he was coming out of the field and he looked like he was kind of dragging stuff. It's like, what is he doing? He had five jackrabbits. <laughs> um, yeah, he'd gone out and he's dragging back 30 pounds of meat. <laughs> I was like, holy crap, Matt. Yeah, he, uh, and I, I've seen a lot of people fly Harris Hawk since then. And I, Matt, is at the top of the heap as far as I'm concerned. He just knows. Well, and Matt told me one time, he said, the way I do it is I'm, I'm ruthless. Um, you know, everybody wants to keep their birds happy. Matt wants to see his birds kill stuff. So, mm -hmm. and he does a damn good job of it. And that is falconry. So, well, and inevitably that that's what usually tends to make your birds happiest anyway. Yeah. You know, yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a, you know, the, the cycle, so to speak. Right. But, and I've seen so many people, you know, especially as Harris Hawks became pervasive. I mean, they're the most common bird in falconry in the United States. Um, I've seen so many people fly them and they catch stuff, but they just kind of catch stuff here and there. And, you know, if you bear down on, and, and I'm not advocate starving birds. It's just, you've got to manage their weight. I mean, then at whatever point Matt started flying falcons, 
and he started flying prairie falcons. And again, he was very, very successful because he knew how to lean on them. They were passage prairies too. And, um, you know, you just, uh, what was it Harry used to say? Um, fat prairie, I forget he had a saying, but uh, they're just never, you're never going to have fun with a fat prairie. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, yeah, it was after that point in time that um, I started flying prairies. And um, I, that, I think it, my real love for birds started there. You know, I, I can't say that the passage female prairies, we flew them, we caught ducks with them. Um, they were never my favorite bird, but they were what was available at that point in time. And um, we learned with them. And um, it set, set us up for, you know, then at some point I, I flew Cooper's Hawks and Prairies and I, I had a lot of success with the Cooper's Hawks. I had some ISs that, uh, um, I, and German shorthairs. I got into German shorthaired pointers and um, I, I killed a bunch of quail with Cooper's Hawks and, and shorthairs. Had a lot of fun, but I, once I moved to Tucson, I kind of went straight to Prairies got a passage prairie. And, um, again, I think I, I, as I told you, I kind of did the 12 step program off of Cooper's Hawks. I met Harry <laughs> and that, so that was the timing there was a little, you know, to meet Harry McElroy and try and get yourself to quit flying Cooper's Hawks was, <laughs> um, and getting to see Harry fly them, you know, the master, uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, but what I saw, you know, when I went out with Harry, especially, um, Harry was going out and catching quail every day with pointing dogs and Cooper's hawks and then Harris hawks and then Oplomato falcons. But I was, you know, my heart yearned for falcons. And it's like, I want to, I could do what Harry's doing, but I can, I want to do it with a falcon. And um, at one point, um, Harry gave me a bird, Harry the Prairie. I think it was actually a captive bred prairie, Tersal Prairie. Um, he called him the troublesome one. <laughs> uh, you'll sit with Harry. He's, he's a trip. But um, I think he flew off on Harry more than once, and that Harry didn't like that. So he gave me this Harry the Prairie. And right away, I, I had been out with Harry and seen him fly Harry the Prairie and um, catch quail with him. And Harry said he would give them to me. And I started catching quail. And then I remember Harry the Prairie was full of surprises. I was, I, I put a quail in a launcher and what I was doing was working the dog with him and I'm bringing in. So I'm trying to have some control over the situation, which is foolhardy in the sport of falconry. But, uh, I've got the quail in the launcher. I've got the dog pointing and Harry the Prairie goes out about a quarter of a mile and he just starts doing tight circles. And I didn't know there was a pond there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I ran over there and there was like two dozen teal on that pond. And he came right through the trees and smashed, a, caught his first duck. And um, so I... Um, you know, I, I learned to love that bird. Um, he, uh, I, I, another story I could tell you about that bird. It was a pretty interesting time for me. I did a lot of, uh, spent a lot of time with dog trainers 
and got a lot of pigeons for hawk food. And um, I got some pigeons. I had fed pigeons that had been shotgunned before in the future, in the past, with um, my Cooper's hawks in, in Albuquerque. Um, not a problem. I started feeding these pigeons to my Cooper or Harry the Prairie, and I had that uh, um, Barbary Teal's per tersel, and they both got lead poisoning. And they, we weren't ever sure. We, they felt like there might actually have been some kind of a soluble lead, like these, these pigeons might have actually got into toxic slurp because they did find a few pellets in their crops, but not enough to warrant. Um, Harry the Prairie, I think, uh, this gal Stormy, the vet, said that he had the highest lead level of any bird they'd ever seen that was still alive. And um, she, um, it was amazing what she put a, a catheter on his leg and did the whole leeching out the lead thing and saved him. Um, and uh, <laughs> I remember Stormy, so that bird meant a lot to her, and I thanked her. I did a whole bunch. I remodeled a room and, and did a bunch of stuff to thank her for having done that. But I went out with Harry the following fall, and Harry and I were flying Harry the Prairie, and we had a dog on point, and Harry the Prairie went up into the stratosphere, which, you know, being the troublesome one. <laughs> and we both thought we saw more than one bird up there. Um, signal disappeared, got the dogs, got the telemetry, walked a long ways, came over a hill, and two golden eagles took off. Mm. And uh, we found Harry the Prairie's bells. Um now, we didn't even find his bell. We found the transmitter, which I had on a plate on his tail. Um, no grommets, no bells. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, uh, um, for me, I think that was the first bird I ever had killed. I'd had a bird electrocuted before, but I'd never had a bird killed by another raptor. Um, but I remember my boy, Harry the Prairie, could get into trouble. Um, I was flying one time, and my boy was probably four, and he was following me, and Harry the Prairie would come to the lure like a, a missile. And my boy, unbeknownst to me, had reached into my bag behind me, and he had the lure line, and he was, <laughs> he's flipping it around. And Harry the Prairie came in and smacked him in the head. <laughs> And I, I, my wife was not happy when I, <laughs> when, when I went home, but I remember when I came home and I put Harry, you know, I was sad because it was a neat bird. I came home and I put his tail feathers on the table and my, my wife and my boy were watching television or something. And I said, Harry the Prairie got killed by an eagle. And Timothy goes, yay! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, son. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You uh, were probably looking in the wrong place for sympathy at that mm -hmm. moment in time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's an unfortunate ending that a lot of uh, falconry birds yep. tend to meet, you know, uh, yep. especially the the falcons that are flown out west. It's uh, yep. a lot of them have been... Killed by golden eagles, unfortunately. I, I tell you, Harry McElroy, man, he could, I don't know how many birds he's had. And he's had, he had a goshawk killed by a red tail. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's non ending list. And of course, when he started flying Oplomatos, everything wants to eat Oplomatos. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, 
But yeah, I've told I've told young falconers that when you get into falconry, there's a lot of fraternities within the falconry community that you don't want to join. <laughs> like I've had a bird electrocuted fraternity. I've had a bird killed by eagles. Um, yeah, there's a lot of fraternities you want to stay away from. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't matter how much you want to stay away from them, though. Eventually, you end up joining yep. one of them. Yes, it's just inevitable. Yep. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's anybody that's done this for any prolonged amount of time that's uh, that's no. not become a uh, seasoned member of, mm-hmm. of said of, yeah. one of those said fraternities. So. Yep. yep, you're right. Yeah, yep. but well, I mean, kind of going back then. I mean, I I, I kind of regretted not being able to to talk to Randy more about this whenever I I did. Uh, my recording with him earlier Mm -hmm. today and I told him we'd probably end up having to do a part two sometime because I I don't think that there's enough information out there kind of readily available for people to either read or hear uh, people talk about as far as flying Cooper's Hawks, you know, Mm -hmm. it seems like, you know, that, that is, that still remains for a lot of people as the enigma, so to speak, you know, Mm of, of, um, I don't know, like if, if a, odds are if, if a falconer has been successful with all these different species of birds and they've failed with one or two species, odds are Coop's going to be in, mm-hmm. in that in that mm-hmm. failure category. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, did you mainly just fly imprint Coops or did you fly passage Coops also? No, the ones that I uh, that I caught a lot of game with were imprints. Yeah. And um, I if I could find my scrapbooks i could pull out i've got a picture of one on my head i'm doing this you know (laughs) i've done another picture of one baiting at my face and me leaning back um so um i i just i I mean they were game killing birds but i i you know i got older and i was like i just can't keep doing that and i tried some passage coopers and quite honestly again i think time went by and now i got into um falcons and especially once um captive bred birds came along because i dearly wanted a peregrine Mm -hmm. um but um not available and then um it was yeah it was the same year my boy was born when he was you know my wife was pregnant with my boy i bought that um barbary peels tiersel um and that um that was where i really started doing what i wanted to do yeah yeah so the like the exhibitor kind of like the the coop was not what you felt like you ultimately were going to continue to be happiest doing by any stretch then yeah i've even thought about it today because of what i'm doing and i can kind of tell you where like um where i'm what i am doing today but i've thought i could be i think very successful more successful for sure in terms of game if I and I would n- no way would I ever take a one have a nest, but I take a passage coopers are like flies around here. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're it's epidemic proportions in Tucson. Um, you get the right one, and you know they're great for a dog. Again, you got to get the right one. But um, I've I've thought about that because of, of what I am pursuing with falcons is so much harder. But my problem is is that. Gosh, it's like, you know, once you've tasted heroin, you just never go back. And, and that, the, the falcon thing to me is just, 
it's so addictive. You you just get completely strung out on watching those birds stoop. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as I say, I know I could be more successful with with occipiters, but uh, eh, and maybe at some point I'll go back. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean the the hardcore long wing guys do seem to have one thing in common is that eventually at least the ones that i've talked to that have been successful it seems like they all eventually get an itch eventually to kind of have at least for a season or two something with higher numbers you know Mm -hmm. or just you know Mm -hmm. that it's just more kind of you know you know kill kill you know type of deal as far as you know being able to take more head of game and stuff and usually an exhibitor you know for a lot of guys tends to fill that or, you know, kind of scratch that itch in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, like I said, I've talked to a lot of people that feel the same way you do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, having seen certain types of, of long wing falconry, I can totally understand, you know, how that would be Mm -hmm. addictive. And, you know, once you start being able to do that consistently and being able, I mean, if you, and if you live in an area that still will let you do that, I mean, that's the hardest part with that. Right. I, 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 I love Falcons too, you know, but unfortunately where I live, I'd have to be creative and I'm trying to figure it out still, you yeah. know, if it's even, you know, all, cause you know how falconry is too. Like you can't ever do it until you do it. Right. Yeah. You know, and you know, until somebody does it, you can't do it. And then when somebody does it, everybody wants to figure out and emulate how you did it. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? I mean, so there's, there's other types of, of game in my area where I think it could work potentially, but it would just take having to, you know, kind of have a creative approach to, you know, kind of finding just the right areas and doing something that not really anybody's been successful doing so far, which yeah. is always tough, you yep. know? Yeah, it's you have to be dedicated and, and be willing to kind of go through that learning curve. And mm-hmm. I remember that when I had that Barbary Peels Tearsel, um, he was a gamey little bird, but I had to learn how to do it. And I, I went out, there was a, a hawking meet, and some guys came over, and the first day we got it, him into some quail, and it really got screwed up. The second day, we kind of snuck out with a small group of people and um, found quail. The dog pointed. He caught a quail. And I remember a kid coming up to me. And, um, you know, people are taking pictures at falconry meet. You know, and, and he said, how long did it take you to teach that bird to do that? And I said, 28 years. <laughs> you know, at that point in time, that was because it just, uh, it takes a long time. And it, it reminds me of something Harry said to me one time. He said, and I laughed when he said it. He said, it's a shame it takes a lifetime to learn how to do this right. And I laughed when he said it. And then, you know, that I've thought about that. And I realized what he was saying. Mm-hmm. We spend... And I definitely feel this way today. Um, we spend so much of our time learning how to do it and kind of doing exactly what you're saying. You know, are you going to go off on this tangent and are you going to pursue that? And I've certainly done that here. Um, and, um, you know, then as I'm, you know, got gray hair now and I find, I really, really know what I want to do with birds and I pray that I have the time and the game to make it happen. Um, but 
um, it's what I'm doing right now is not easy. You know, it's there's certainly well, somebody said that if you want to pursue the hardest way there is to catch a fish, take up fly fishing. Uh-huh. And, yeah. um, you know, what you're saying, it just flying a falcon in Tucson, Arizona is not the easiest thing to do. Um, and I know some of the guys have, you know, said, hey, I want to get into that. You know, it looks neat. And it's just a lot of work compared to going out with a Harris hawk or a Cooper's hawk <clears throat> and catching game. Sure. Um, yeah. It's a lot of work. And you've got to really be um, addicted to it. Um, but, you know, I'm sure you could in your situation figure a way to make it happen. But there would be a learning curve, I'll tell you that. I've mm. already experienced it a little bit. Yep. You know, I mean, I, yep. I had an imprint, uh, Tearsel Prairie, that I've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just as I was about ready to start hunting him, he died of a bacterial infection. Mm. And then, you know, I've tried a couple of bigger long wings in my area. And, you know, looking back on it, I, I know now, I mean, just reanalyzing things and seeing all these other guys, you know, through my travels and stuff and kind of how talking to them, how they do things. And, I mean, first of all, I mean, I know one of the mistakes I made was just asking too many people initially, you know, which, which <laughs> yeah. can be a problem, especially when it comes to long wings. It's, yeah. you know, that, that's a huge, you know, thing that you, you find <laughs> yeah. out real quick that you shouldn't do. But, um, but yeah, no, I totally understand what you're, what you're saying. And mm-hmm. I mean, just finishing the thought about the coop stuff real quick too. I mean, is there anything in particular that you think that you did with your birds that, I mean, can contributed to your success more than anything with, else with or, Coopers. Yeah. With your, with the coops that you imprinted well, you, or using a dog, certainly, um, because you, um, Coopers, especially out here in the desert, man, they, they just bury themselves. And of course, Harry was the absolute master at, you know, he had these sticks and he'd dig everything out. But, um, I, th- I think you, you can't get greedy at first, you know, when they kill stuff, you got to let them eat it. Um, and I, uh, honestly, I, I don't think I would have had those Coopers when I was young. Um, how old would I have been? Late teens, early 20s. Um, they wouldn't have been the face grabbers they were if I had been patient. But mm-hmm. you can't tell an 18-year-old boy strung out on falconry to be patient. So, <laughs> And so I would try and, you know, kill three or four quail in a day and by that third or fourth one, they were starting to resent it. Um, um, I, I think, honestly, the um, just putting them in a situation where they can kill, and then I, I feel the same way about flying falcons. You know, you've ju- you just got to um, reward them for what they've done and try and duplicate that same situation again and, and hope that the falconry gods smile on you and you can find that situation. You know, that's... Um, you you work and you work and you work with the bird and i know like with young falcons and you go out and then finally you kill a duck with one and you just pray that it's not two weeks before you see a duck again you know <laughs> yeah. um that if you can get it on a roll get two or three going and of course with uh especially here um i think now finally i can say that you can go out and find some quail well nate is um doing great things with a goshawk and catching quail and the desert quail i'd quit hunting them i mean they, our numbers were so low it was you know because i shotgun too just because of my dogs you know i i had quit shotgunning but just to train bird dogs i got into shotgunning again 
And I used to say, you know, some people walk their dogs around the neighborhood. Well, I put three shotgun shells in my pocket and go walk my dog out in the desert. Mm -hmm. You'd be lucky to find a quail. But finally, we've had all this great rain, and so that the quail are coming back. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd really, Nate and I have uh, talked a, a bunch this year. He's very intrigued hearing about what I'm doing, and he sent me video of his goshawk, and he's, he's, to me, is kind of following Harry's footsteps. I think he's even in some of the areas where Harry used to fly um, with a goshawk, and he's got Britneys, I believe. And um, but um, and I'd, I'd love to pick his brain um, and see. You know, he seems very successful. So what is he doing mm -hmm. to be successful? Um, I one of the things I love about Harry when we used to go to meets, I've never met anybody. Especially with, I mean, he's a small man, but his stature as a falconer, that when you would go to meets and he'd meet new people, Harry would listen 80% of the time and talk 20% of the time. And I think that's how he learned. And, you know, I, I can remember on a couple occasions, Harry would be talking to somebody we didn't know, and he'd, he'd look at me and he'd raise his eyebrows and he'd keep listening, you know, and... <laughs> He, uh, uh, there were some people who told him like they told him they had a new way to fly Cooper's Hawks, uh -huh. you know, and they, they'd start, and you know, this, this is Harry. They were telling Harry and I, I can just remember Harry and he was never, you know, he's a very polite man. He's, a, he's definitely the old school gentleman. He would never say anything nasty to anybody. He'd listen, but I'd see his eyebrows go up on some of those <laughs> great ideas people had everybody i think that's another thing that um and that falconry has shown me over the because as i've told you our, our beginnings three english falconry books you know we didn't have a network we finally ran into the guys that were catching peregrines down at padre island and so that kind of opened up our universe that there really were falcons guys flying peregrines you know but um Today, everybody seems to want to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. They want, you know, everybody, my, my sister has said, you need to write a book. And I'm like, well, about what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can understand that, you know, but well, I mean, the, that's the thing though, is, I mean, there's a lot of people that think that they don't have anything new to offer just because they've mm -hmm. already been, you know, I mean, I've had people before that, you know, I've talked about you know, doing a, a podcast with or something. And they're like, well, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm kind of old news in the falconry world now, this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that in a way under underestimate or undervalue what offering, a, at least if nothing else, a different medium for people to get information from them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I think that even though there's been books written and, you know, whatever forms of medium for people to absorb information, there's always something, even if it's just the smallest morsel or yep. something that, that comes out the yep. more that people offer up information sometimes. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm always happy for people whenever they agree to do what, whatever, you know, it, it is that they, you know, are, are offering up to people as far as information and stuff. You never know what is going to come out yep. you know, sometimes or come to mind something that, oh, well, maybe I haven't ever discussed that before right. or, or talked about that before. Or, 
Right. So you never know. Maybe, maybe whenever you're you're writing that book, <laughs> uh, you know something will come to mind that nobody's ever uh, I, talked about before. I just I think about falconry and Matt and I. Gosh, it's over fifty years we've been doing it, which is you know astounding to me. But um, it just it humbles you because um, I remember Pete Youngman used to say that when falconers you you get into falconry you get strung if you're going to be a real falconer you become strung out in falconry it's part of it and at the 10-year mark um you begin to think you're something and you do know a lot i mean after 10 years if you've really been flying birds and you're catching game and you're pursuing anything avidly you do know a lot but Pete would say that's when you get really dangerous because you begin to think you know a lot. And what I can say after all this time is that falconry just continues to humble me. You know, I, I, whenever I go out with the bird now and, and with the dogs, it's, there's, it's like, I just have to do this right. And I want to, and, and I can't screw this up. I've got to, and I realize how it takes precision I mean, I, I want a bird to go up high and I want a dog to point at, you know, you can read a thousand books on e either of those subjects, but um, getting it to happen for you in, in your space of time, um, it can be very humbling. <laughs> for sure, because it doesn't matter how detailed a book may be or whatever, it doesn't always necessarily uh, describe your exact situation right. and your right. exact circumstances. Right. Or your exact bird or dog. Right. You know, yeah. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. But, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you mentioned, you kind of briefly touched on, I mean, we've kind of already discussed a little bit about, you know, what you've done. Um, but I mean, I, I, I know we were kind of talking a little bit ago and you kind of brushed over it earlier, but, you know, kind of talking about, you know, the, the, the Arizona club and, and your involvement with that before. And, I mean, you kind of touched a little bit too about, you know, kind of, um, you know, being around and being there during, you know, when Arizona was like the first state to be allowed, you know, Peregrine take mm -hmm. after, you know, I mean, what was your experience with all that? I mean, I, I kind of talked to Randy a little bit about this too, but, mm -hmm. um, I mean, what was your personal experience with all that and seeing how that evolved and, and, you know, getting all that worked out? I mean, what, when, what went on? Well, all that. I definitely, um, as I had said to you before we started, I wanted to be one of the first ones. I, I dearly wanted to fly a peregrine legally, you know, a wild peregrine legally. And um, I, w we went to, there were meetings with the Game and Fish. Some of that stuff was so discouraging. Dealing, and our Game and Fish, all in all, I think is a pretty good the department's pretty good. They, they lean heavily on biology. Um, but, um, there were so, there were so many lawsuits and stuff that, um, cause we got permits, I think two years, I had a peregrine tag and I'd get a call and they'd say, not only would I get a call from somebody in the game and fish, but the guy from the U S fish and wildlife would call me and say, you cannot take a peregrine. Um, even though I had that tag and because there were more lawsuits. Um, and so it, it was a thing where you did have to be involved. And we went to the meetings and when we finally believed we had it in hand, um, and I think it was the third year actually, 
And um, I can't remember, I probably had a tag. But again, you know, don't get too excited about that piece of paper. <laughs> but I went to a, a commission meeting with my boy. And the Peregrine take was on the agenda, the very last thing on the on the agenda, we meeting opened at eight. And when they were turning the lights off at five o'clock, they got to the Peregrine take. And one of the game and fish guys gave my boy a hat a game and fish hat, because he said, he's pretty good to sit with you this long <laughs> in that room and listen to the all the discussion about uh, deer herds and mountain lions and all this stuff. But um, I thank the commissioners for, you know, sticking with biology. And um, they, you know, at the end of, they said, well, you're going to, you guys are going to get your peregrines. So it, it took a lot of work, um, and um, I'll never forget that, especially going to that meeting. You know, it was just, it meant so much to me. Um, and going out with the guys when we finally went, um, finding nests. I mean, you can find peregrines, but cl cliffs that we were going to climb. Um, and we found some peregrines in some neat places. I've, I've actually seen peregrine, a couple of peregrine nests that were walking nests. You know, some of them are nest 30 feet off the ground um in crazy places um but um when we finally did that i mean it was i was i was the guy in arizona <laughs> for a while and i loved it every minute of it um i don't remember exactly how many um i think i've taken five of them myself iases um and I still have that falcon from the first year. This is our this year is twenty years of our peregrine take. Amazingly, we still can't do the passages, but um, it was a really wonderful time to climb to climb into peregrine iris. It was exciting, and to to do it with some people. I met some wonderful people. Guys came from um, different parts of the country, and I met them and helped them, and and to see their excitement, and then people writing me and you know, telling me how their birds were doing. Um, it was just a wonderful, and, and quite honestly, I mean, I was stoned on peregrines. I mean, they were um, my life. I wrote, when I got that bird, um, Mystique, um, I wrote an article for the NAFA journal called To Take a Peregrine, and there's pictures of us throwing the ropes and pictures of us with the ISs and all that, and just... Uh, talking about how we'd waited 30 years, you know, for, cause I remember when the, my aunt told me that peregrine falcons went on the endangered species list. Um, my aunt was an avid birder. Um, about the time I thought, Hey, I, I think I'm kind of interested in these things and they may became an endangered species. But, um, I, to be able to write that article and just talk about what a thrill it was to get those birds. And I would like at some point in time, I guess Mystique will let me know. Um, I want to write another article and, and call call it To Fly a Peregrine because she became, I didn't, I wanted a tearsel. I, I really wanted a tearsel and um, ended up with the falcon. Um, I did not intend to keep her. I've, I've killed more game with her than any bird I've ever had. In her heyday, she was just a flying gorilla. I mean, um, she flew high, she flew low, but God, she... She killed ducks. I had a great lab that um, flew with her. You know, it was just, I really had a wonderful time. And the second year I got a tearsel 
um, finally little Johnny and he, uh, he became, um, famous in his own right. Um, he, um, that's where I think little Johnny, well, I'd had that tearsole I told you about the Barbary peels and I learned to love the, um, the way those little bitty, he was a 500 gram bird and the way they just yo-yo in the air and just up and down and up and down and they're just their energy um and you know it's one thing to see mystique can miss a duck and she can go in and bind to a mallard drake and ride it to the ground and rodeo it and subdue it but to see tiersels do it you know a 500 and whatever gram tiersel is a whole different thing um, and I think I liked, that's where I, I really learned to love the energy of tiersels. Um, and to this day, I will say that I think tiersel peregrines are my favorite bird, although those passage tiersel prairies have they've, uh, come on real strong. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, um, the whole peregrine thing, I really felt, I, I definitely was in the middle of it and I loved it. And then it, um, Matt Murray, who is a, a younger guy that, um, I helped him get one and, um, Matt, I think it got electrocuted. He was absolutely heartbroken. Um, but through the years, Matt's gotten, you know, we've gotten more peregrines and he, Matt's kind of become the guy and I'm glad I won't, I'm not going to be climbing any more cliffs. I, I did, I've, counted one time I've been down to Peregrine Iris in Arizona 12 times and um it you know what a thrill to do it but um I'm really look forward to the passages true passages not the catch them before September passages those aren't passages they're recently fledged there's a big difference um they haven't met the angel of death yet you know <laughs> a true a true passage has met the angel of death but yeah I um the whole Peregrine thing um became you know it, it was and it in the middle of all that was when we our laws were going to change they were going to and arizona had to ad adopt you know the new federal stuff and so that's when i became the president of the club and that was a miserable couple of years for me <laughs> <laughs> uh i i got to meet and work with some wonderful people. But one thing I realized very quickly that some of the people I was working with were much more qualified to do. And once I realized <clears throat> that these guys could take the ball and go the right direction with it, I just wanted to make sure that Arizona was very divided. And that's there's history behind that. There was like two clubs and there was kind of the Republicans and the Democrats kind of thing. And, um, that was not good. You know, we, how are you going to sit with the game and fish and do all that? And so that was my big plea as president. Let's all get on the same page and you, we don't have to go fly birds together. We don't have to even like each other, but let's work together and get a good set of falconry laws. And, um, Charlie Kaiser, who was the guy who was, uh, vice president or whatever underneath me ended up taking over and he was much more adept at, and, um, led, you know, took what I started and, gave us great falconry laws. So I, um, I, you know, at that time between the peregrines and doing that, I was very involved with the club. Um, so it was, it was neat to get involved with the Arizona, the falconry community. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work and yes. any, any, anything that, I mean, especially it's, it's a lot of work for no pay, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, it's, it, it really is. I mean, there's so much that goes into, being a, a part of, uh, you know, being on a, a board position 
of a falconry club mm -hmm. or really, I mean, it's any club, but it's falconry club in particular that, I mean, unless you do it, you really can't appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it seems like every year it, it's, it's kind of an ongoing, I wouldn't say battle, but it's hard to get people to get more involved at times. Yeah. And, and it's really hard keeping people, I don't know, engaged and you, you try your best, but I mean, I, I kind of became more involved with, with our state club this past year mm -hmm. and, you know, now having sat in on some of these different things and, and, um, you know, taking on just the role of, of being kind of like communications and, and putting together our, our twice a, a year, you know, uh, publication and mm -hmm. stuff and things like that. I mean, people don't realize, you know, it, it really is a lot of work. Yeah. And, yeah. I, you know, like I said, I, I, I kind of understand both sides because unless you, you become more involved and take on a role like that and eventually do your part and take over for the people that, you know, eventually, will resign from those positions or right. whatever. It's really hard to appreciate just how much work goes into all that. Yep. So, I mean, kudos to you for, for doing that for your club and uh, especially being involved at a time where I'm sure that the, the workload was that much bigger. Yeah. <laughs> than, and I, than you typical. know, again, the club was so divided. That was so hard. Yeah. Um, and I just recently, um, Somebody has nominated me to be one of the directors, and I, I accepted the nomination. And I'm, I'm retired, kind of. Um, I closed my business, and so my life is a little bit simpler. And um, I thought, you know, it might be time to give back. And I'm not going to be the guy in the front. But I do think now I have a perspective. I can give people perspective. Um, and I think I can do it in a reasonable manner. Yeah, and, and and doing it in a manner in which you, I mean, people are going to be receptive and, and listen is a whole other thing too, you know, <laughs> yeah. which is always a challenge as that's, well. But. That's never guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But, well, I mean, so basically, I mean, as far as your, your long wing then with Peregrines and, and, uh, or, and, and Tearsville Prairies and, and stuff, I mean, is it pretty much, you know, duck and, and quail then that you're going to continue to pursue then in the, in the foreseeable future? Or is there other things that you're wanting to, to do with, with your well, long wean? Yeah. In it, staying in the state. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'd, I'd also, I'd love to be able to travel and Hungarian partridge have always fascinated me. I'm not a guy who wants to kill the biggest bird out there. So I've never, although I, I marvel at these guys catching their sage grouse and stuff, the big falcons, I've, they watch some guys fly some big deer falcons and stuff. They're amazing birds, but I just have never, never really been attracted. Again, I, I, those little tersels just call to me and, um, I dove quail and ducks and I, uh, with Mystique and little Johnny, and then a couple of other birds along the way, I've killed a whole bunch of ducks and by no means am I, you know, there's Matt Mitchell's probably killed 10 ducks, every duck I've killed, but um, I've killed a bunch of ducks and I've had a lot of fun doing it, but what I really love is, um, hunting over pointing dogs and so quail, but you know, the hard part for us is we went into a 20 year drought after I got here. And as I said, it was not worth looking for quail in the desert. And I started hunting Mern's quail with a shotgun 
and the Mearns quail down by the border, different species not so dependent on the rain as the desert quail, and um, had a lot of fun with my dogs hunting Mearns quail. But then I decided, I guess eight years ago, nine years ago, I said, I want to kill a Mearns quail with a falcon. Um, my wife is the one who saw an ad. I don't remember where it was on a forum, but a guy was had these setters for sale. Tony Houston in New Mexico had these setters. And I got this crazy red dog that I have that, uh, but I, um, I one time the Harry, the Prairie, that, um, Prairie that I gotten from Harry the day before he was killed by the Eagle. I went out down to Sonoida and I had a German short hair and short hairs going through the hills and points. Um, and Harry, the Prairie goes up and he's half a mile away. He's doing his Harry the Prairie thing and then taking forever to come back. And I, 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 the dog was pointing for at least 10 minutes, um, wouldn't move. And I finally said, I'm going to teach him a lesson. I'm the one who got the lesson because when I went over and flushed those quail, it was <laughs> Mern's quail. And he, you know, of course he came barreling down, but he was too far away. And the quail put in and I, you know, I went down the next day and told Harry and then <laughs> The bird got killed. But from that point onward, I want to kill. I've killed scaled quail. I grew up in New Mexico with scaled quail. And then um, uh, gambles is the thing that we've hunted the most of here. Never have killed a Mern's quail with a falcon. Um, and uh, so I got this setter. And that was my mission with that setter is I want to kill a Mern's quail with a falcon over that setter. Well, we got the setter and she became, she's not the perfect dog, but she loves quail and points quail and holds her points. Um, but trying to get the right falcon became quite a challenge. Um, and I did some rehab falcons, um, rehab peregrines. Um, and never, I was hoping because you always have the option if we could release them or we could keep them. And that none of them never panned out. They just were not going to be falconry birds. But uh, as I told you, I um, my most recent bird now, hard to believe, five years, I've had this little passage Tercel Prairie. A guy had this bird up in Phoenix, and somebody gave him a Tercel Peregrine. He had trapped it, and I think kind of got it going up, and that was about it. And I got the bird and really didn't do anything with it the first season and said, I'm going to start the next season. And the next season that bird just took off and started going up. And I started um, doing the, putting a quail in the launcher and bringing the dog in. And I went through some years. I, I had a lot of uh, stuff that, responsibilities that kept me from pursuing it the way I wanted to. But um, I kept doing, I did a lot of that quail on the launcher and releasing quail and putting them out and just letting the dog go and and it was as close to being real as it could be. Um, and that, I just because of the things I had going on in my life, I couldn't get out and hunt. But the last two years, um, <clears throat> I've gotten Tanner Schaub over in New Mexico. I said, we got a bunch of quail. Bring that bird over here. And Tanner, I told him, Tanner, this bird goes up really high. And this dog, and he's like, yeah, I want to see if you're, you know, <laughs> and I, I remember I went over, I met Tanner two years ago and I went out and, and, um, we found some dove and, um, 
was, it was later in the day and I'd just gotten over there. He said, well, you know, let's fly some dove. And so I remember when I unhooded the bird, he said, well, we're going to find out whether you're full of crap, aren't we? <laughs> and when they were, you know, trying to find the damn bird binoculars, it's like, <laughs> and then the bird smashed this dove down in front of us. And Tanner's like, holy moly. And I'm like, no, I wasn't kidding, Tanner. Yeah. And we did the same thing the next couple of days with quail. Um, and uh, honestly, what I have, and a lot of people listening to this will laugh, this prairie has his biggest fault is he goes too high, um, but it's so much fun to watch. <laughs> um, I, I've had a number of flights that if he was half the pitch he was at, he probably would have got the quail. But to see, you know, the dog holding that point and have that bird come over at 800 feet and stoop from that pitch is awesome. And I, even though what I've gotten to see is, is quail getting knocked around, knocked into bushes, and it's never, it just hasn't um, panned out. Um, I'm like, I come back. When I get to see my dog find quail and hold a point and see that bird come down, I'm, I'm good. That's you know? <laughs> how a lot of long-winged guys are. You yeah. know, it stops being yeah. about, you know, the, the number of of game in the bag and more about the flights. So right. that's what I keep hearing more and more when I, when I talk to long wing guys, but right. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that this year, again, I'm kind of retired and I'm hoping that I can, I know the bird and the dog now, and I'll have to get them both tuned up, you know, in the fall, but to really go back out and start looking for Mern's quail because the falconry season, I can hunt Mern's quail long before the gun season and see if I can get out. Mern's quail became very, very popular. Mm. Um, people heard about it, you know, the internet, a wonderful thing, and it's a horrible thing. And, <laughs> and uh, all the bird dog guys found out, hey, they got these quail in Arizona that don't run. Mm. You know, they hold for a dog, and, and they became very popular. But the trick is getting them. And the other thing is they're in oak-filled canyons, but they're out in the grasslands too. So I want to... I want to put a Mern's quail in the bag with the falcon. Um, and I've still got the old bird, 20 years. Of course, last year we didn't, we didn't uh, hunt ducks because of the virus thing, mm -hmm. the influenza. But uh, I might, I'll put her, I let, I let her fly a few laps last year, but uh, um, I'll get her out. I've even thought about putting her over Mern's quail. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I <laughs> she, mean, yeah. If that's... In her day, she was one agile peregrine. I mean, because I flew her around so many of the ponds around here with, with mesquites and stuff, you know, did, she did stuff that most guys would never, never want to see their falcon do. She was very agile, but I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got options and that's mm -hmm. the important yep. thing. So, yep. I mean, best of luck to you on that, whatever you do decide to do, but I'm going to go ahead and um, end this on a, the same note that I have been with a lot of other guys that I've been talking to recently, guys and, and gals, and just want to get whatever piece of advice you think you would like to pass on to future generations or even current falconers and just, um, you know, call it good after that. And yeah, just what whatever piece of advice or sentiment that you think is, is really important and um, we'll call it good. Well, I guess the, you know, the biggest thing, and I kind of touched on it earlier, is that going forward for me, I'm certainly in, you know, heading toward my golden years as, as a falconer. 
but the biggest thing that's going to be a challenge in the future is the game that we hunt, um, having the habitat. And I think that falconers are going to have to be, you know, we talked about all the organizations and, you know, you can pick your own, but people have to be involved with um, the conservation and, and trying, because without the game, it doesn't matter. You know, I, I would say that to me, going forward, that would probably be the, the most important thing I could tell people is get involved because you can get any species of peregrine you want. You can, you know, get eagles, you can get whatever you want, but if you don't have the game to fly them at, it's nonsense. So, um, yeah, I, that's my biggest concern. And, you know, here in Arizona, we finally been blessed with a bunch of rain. So I think our quail are coming back. Um, they're still overgrazing the hell out of the desert out there, but, but uh, um, you know, it's just be involved with that, and because that's to me, that's the big crux of the future of falconry is the game that we hunt. For um, sure, yeah, yeah, for so. sure, yeah. It's only going to get harder, and um, well, I mean, like I said, I I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, and um, I'm glad that we could figure it out. And work it out mm -hmm. in person is always so much better than remote yep. you know and yep. um like i said it's it's given me a chance to drive through a, a state that i like i said i, I love and and still kind of hold mm -hmm. a, a special place for in, in my heart so it's been nice being able to kind of trek around a little bit even though it's tiring uh, <laughs> right right yeah but um but yeah. like i said i you know i, I really appreciate you appreciate your time and and um i'm thankful for you all bringing me out so. yeah well appreciate you coming down yeah. It was fun. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you had a good time. And um, yeah, we'll just go ahead and, and call it good. And until next time, I'm sure that we could do another part two, just like, you know, Code with Randy and, and probably pretty much everybody I'm going to end up talking to on this right. trip. But right. uh, anyway, like I said, uh, we'll go ahead and call it good and we will talk again soon. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Appreciate you, Tim. Yep.